Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Farah Qureshi. Farah is the CEO and founder of Global Diversity Practice, an award-winning provider of innovative multidisciplinary consultancy and learning solutions. Farah, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you so much. I'm really uh, pleased to accept the invite and looking forward to sharing these thoughts and opinions with you and your listeners. It's an absolute pleasure having you um, on the air, Farah. Now, um, first and foremost, I suppose what I'd like to um, understand is what that word leader actually means to you, because leadership has many different faces, doesn't it? It does, and I've always been fascinated by leadership. I guess personally and professionally, having experienced different types and styles of leadership, and my background is actually in leadership development and organisational consulting, and um, uh, so my qualifications in that space too as well. And I think the traditional leaders were where, you know, you had your vision, your ability to make those tough calls, your charisma, um, and, and um, you know, those, uh, those heroic moments that you, you know, made legend in your organisations. And I guess some element of that is still true. But for me, I've been fascinated uh, uh, the whole definition of leadership for me, it's with and through others. Mm. And that really encapsulates um, where you're empowering others because of your presence, the impact of your leadership, that it's sustainable beyond you, um, you know, where others realize their own capacity and power because you've created the conditions. And I think there are fundamental essentials for a 21st century leadership. And now more than others in this time of crisis, um, they are absolutely required. So I think in you know, a critical components like being authentic, being vulnerable, saying you know, sharing your views and thoughts and feelings and your emotions. Now more than ever, that's going to be the connectivity um, that that helps us link and understand and empathise with the other. And there are many others right now from your staff, your employees, your colleagues, your customers, the marketplace, um, people who are disadvantaged, people who are advantaged, um, people who have been devastated by this uh, virus and others that uh, are watching on the periphery. Um, So authenticity is really important and empathy absolutely goes hand in hand with that. Your ability to be your true self, to show your vulnerability, to show compassion, um, and um, you know, to to make sure that you inspire others through that, and they by by showing yourself and being empathetic, you're opening up the conversation. I think now more than others, connectivity is more important, and then underpinning that, your logic, so your ability to have rigor in your ideas, your ability to be courageous. Um, and take risks and be a bit like a chameleon, adapt to the times. Mm. Um, you know, I know personally these last six weeks have been a real, you know, roller coaster of emotions, um, feelings, and actually, I think resilience is what has helped me get through. And that's what I've learned at every stage of my leadership journey: the ability to deal and deal well with the unexpected. And they're around every corner. I mean, this is huge. 
But if we look back into our lives, I'm sure we can all identify those moments where, you know, we either had our head in our hands with, with distress or we were punching the air with delight. And both of those have got challenges and opportunities. So my definition of leadership is that an essential 21st leader has these critical components that help them deliver whatever their vision, whatever the vision, mission, or whatever it may be, the bottom line, the top line, the middle line, with and through others. You make some hugely important points there, Farah, because it's important to remember that being a leader isn't just a one man or one woman operation, is it? Because without other people around you, what is there actually there to lead? There isn't really anything, is there? No, it's got to be through collaboration. You can have a great idea. You could have been, you know, I found my business. I had an idea at one point. But I know that, you know, every step of the way, whether it be my clients or my team or my colleagues, actually the ability to translate that vision or that ambition into one that's collective, that others buy into, they put their own flavor on, that you're open enough to that, that you don't have all the answers. Indeed, if anything, you know, my journey in this space has taught me that more often than not, you know, the answer is outside of your own domain and therefore creating the conditions um, to be open to those um, different perspectives, creating the conditions to create psychological safety where people can speak up and share their opinions. And however, you know, off the wall it may be, you know, for me, being disruptive in a positive way, has been one of the critical aspects of getting to where I have today, is not accepting the status quo, is taking the best from that current status, but always thinking about, how can I rewrite these rules? How can we do something differently? How can we continue to be not just in a meeting needs, but be ahead of the curve? And that's where your creativity, your imagination, your inspiration, and underpinning all of that, your humility comes in. Mm. So, you know, my definitions of leadership are, are, are a combination of multiple components, and that, that the definition of being a chameleon, being able to adapt and modify and, you know, continue to, to, to meet whatever challenges you face is absolutely at the, at the core of what effective leadership is. Um, so that's mm. my definition. It's an integral experience of being a good leader, isn't it? Having those um, experiences of going out of your comfort zone and having to push the boundaries and having to adapt and improve and perhaps even making mistakes along the way and learning from them. Um, do you think it's really possible to be a good leader, Farah, without having that experience? No, I think, you know, if you're honest, um, you know, uh, I know you probably hear this many times, but you know, we uh, if we didn't make mistakes, we wouldn't would never learn. I think I remember saying, you know, you, you either win or you learn, and, and and that's the output. So, for me, you know, our mistakes, the experiences we've had, I guess it's your perspective on how you see that. You know, we wouldn't be human if we didn't put, the, uh, you know, make the wrong choice or make the wrong decision. But you're learning from that, and you know, once a mistake, twice a bit of a you know oversight but third time if you're not learning then then clearly there's something wrong there and so you know I've always been a great believer in in, in a lot of self-awareness mm. um, I, I, I travel a lot I deliver you know my work has took me to 164 countries 
across the world, diverse sectors, boardrooms with CEOs, to you know, frontline colleagues to doing keynote speeches on stages with eight thousand colleagues sitting listening. You know, so in all of that journey, you know, I'm always struck when I'm flying um, and the the air stewards say, "Put your own face mask on first before you help others." And so self awareness is absolutely critical. Your ability mm. to understand yourself and the other. And then really continually have this conversation with yourself. How am I doing? What, how did I respond? You know, what can I do differently? What have I learned? Um, and, you know, that, that's being in touch with who you are and that's going to be, that's constant. You know, what's happening on my watch? Stewardship is another aspect of leadership. Um, what do I stand for is, is another aspect of leadership. Um, how am I checking in? How am I showing up on a daily basis? You know, um, all of these things are all aspects of, um, of leadership. And you talk there about um, the importance of self-awareness as well. And I think a key part of that is, especially as a leader, recognising that we are, we do have our limitations as humans. And I think there can be a lot of pressure on leaders, especially in times of crisis like this, to have all of the answers. Whereas that's not always going to be the case, isn't it? That's, that, that's something that a leader has to take into account. But also, even though they may not have the answers, they can still be able to relay the message that they want to give to people in a certain way and make sure that everybody still mucks in and works towards a common goal. Absolutely. I think, you know, your values, and I'm saying to a lot of my clients at the moment, and, you know, I work with some fascinating brands across the world, and I'm saying to them, this is the moment, this is the moment where, you know, who you are and what you stand for, like never before, is going to be tested. Your values will drive you through. Don't let go of them. Of course, you know, I'm also realistic. I'm a business leader. There are some tough decisions to make. You know, you might have your eye on the bottom line in terms of cost cutting and, you know, how can I, you know, survive? But actually, look at this as an opportunity to remodel, refashion, and keep those, um, you know, critical aspects front and centre of your things. How you lead and lead inclusively in this unprecedented moment will be absolute. That's what you'll be remembered for. I remember working with the CEO when the oil crisis happened, and that CEO, you know, was, was right in the thick of it. And he and he said, um, "This is my moment, Farah." And I said, "Well, then, what, what are you going to do?" And he said, I'm not going to let go of my values. I will be remembered for what I did at this moment. And, 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 and that's really critical. But then also, it's how you open up the conversation. I always remember a quote by Nelson Mandela, who's one of my sort of inspirations. And he said, great leaders are those that surround themselves with people that are much better than them, mm-hmm. much smarter than them, and have lots of ideas. And, you know, you can't possibly know everything. I mean, you know, we're dealing with an unprecedented situation. If you don't pool ideas, if you don't create psychological safety, if you don't deliver on the psychological contract with your colleagues and your employees right now, and you don't create trust and, and make sure that, that those trust signals are strong and they're consistent and they're sending out a message of empowerment to your colleagues and you're not doing it in a human and authentic way, then you lose your moment and we don't have all the answers. I've learned 
more about the answers and responses to questions from others than I've ever been able to, to, to give myself. And that's what we've got to create. You know, we're going into this situation soon, hopefully, when we get through the, the horror and the terror of what we face, where there will be a lot of emphasis on cultural reintegration and, and your organisational culture and your mindset. And this is the moment where all of those aspects that I've been discussing, um, you know, um, are going are gonna to be critical. And the, one of the first things I did when this happened was, was consult with my team. How, what can we do in this current moment in time to, you know, be sustainable, to continue our mission, to realise our ambition, to look after all of you, to make sure you're okay, you know, and and through that we had so many fantastic ideas, um, and and they've really really helped. There's a lot to be said for um, the saying that's going around um, a lot at the moment, isn't there? That times of adversity do bring out the best in people. Um, and we're seeing that um, in um, a lot of businesses, people are very much still getting uh, stuck in without um, any complaints, um, whether they're having to work on site or whether they're having to work remotely from home. And leaders um, and the way that they've treated their staff, it's, that's basically had a lot to say for how um, their staff have worked, isn't it? Because people will produce for you if they know that you care about them, as you've said already. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the first things, I mean, I'd, I'd done it anyway and I'd always recommended it to my clients, but whenever we have our daily meets um, and our daily wrap-ups, the first thing on the agenda is, how are you? Very simple question. How's it going? What's going on in your family? What's going on in your life? You know, we've, we've listened to stories of tragedy. You know, we've shared them. Right at the beginning of this crisis, I personally experienced, my daughter fell very, very ill, very suddenly, and there was all the dilemmas of taking it to hospital. And, and immediately afterwards, I, I, I just felt compelled to write about that experience because I think for too long as leaders, we're given messages that we need to be superhuman and we need to have always have the solution and we need to stay 100% resilient. And I had my huge moment of weakness and I shared that with my team. I shared it publicly in a in a, in a blog on LinkedIn, and I you know, hashtagged it to compassion because that's what will get us through. So I, I think you know it's really really essential to be doing that um, consistently as well. It's not just the one off. You know, if you're not authentic around it, people can tell. Your colleagues can tell your tone of voice. And then what are you doing to adapt? So. You know, how are you showing solidarity to those people that are disproportionately affected? You know, I live in in a part of um, the UK where the there is you know um, uh, this our community has been massively affected. There was a day when there were eight funerals going on, one after Mm. the other, one after the other. You know, I was in conversations with people who got calls saying their loved ones had just died from COVID. Um, You know, this is just uh, it's mind blowing. So. At this moment in time, showing solidarity and recognizing those colleagues in your workforce, you'll have some, and I've experienced this myself, where, you know, this is a moment of reflection and it's like you've got ability to be at home and you've got ability to be with your family and you're counting your blessings for others. They've got small kids they're looking after, they're, they're looking after their parents or somebody's in hospital. Um, and then you've got others that have lost their families and not had the chance to grieve. I mean, can you just imagine the trauma they're going through? So 
showing solidarity and being there for your people is really important. The other side of leadership is using your voice in a purposeful way. So out there right now, right the way through this crisis, we have seen rhetoric, um, racist rhetoric, xenophobic rhetoric, whatever. And so for me, a great leader is somebody who uses their voice to, to, to speak up, to uh, influence others, and to show courage when others are staying silent. And I think that's the other part of this, this um, angle. Mm. Dealing with self-care, with anxiety, people are feeling overwhelmed, they feel fear being there for them. Um, you know, how can we support parents and the caregivers? How can we, even in this moment in time, in my area of specialism, which looks at unconscious bias and how it influences our decision-making, how does that impact which ventilator you're going to switch off? How does that impact which member of your team you're going to furlough or you're going to let go of? You know, we're making decisions that are really, really critical and it's really important to make sure that we are as rigorous as possible in our thinking and we have made sure that we've looked at things from diverse perspectives. And I think the positive of all of this is it's an ability to recreate, refashion. Um, you know, for me, I've been so touched. And for me, I used to always say, you know, when I'm working with my clients and I'm on key, delivering keynote speeches or webinars or podcasts or whatever, is that it's our humanity that will get us through um, the 21st century redefine the notion of leadership and what it means to be a leader. Redefine, um, you know, what expectations people have of you. And at the end of this, it will be those that, that met those standards, those that, you know, um, delivered for their people and delivered with and through them. And we'll be, and, and actually, the, and this is not all soft and fluffy, you know, you get some people mm. tell us about hugging trees and, you know, this is so, actually welcome to the new heart of the 21st century. Because if you do all of this, then you'll be able to manage the tailwinds that are out there, the competitive tailwinds. If you understand your employee sentiment, if you understand your brand health and how it's looking right now, if you understand um, you know, how you're going, the, the, the small things that you do, don't underestimate the power of the small. And if you understand that, I believe that after we emerge from this process, not only will we be sustainable and healthier if we keep those if we go back to where we were then you know think about how we went into this crisis and what lessons we can learn from that and and who knows what's around the corner be ready for that next one thinking about all the things that you've learned from this one so they're just my view. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There is a, going to be a lot to uh, learn from um, this whole experience. And if we do think about the uh, the future um, again, uh, Farah, before we do wrap things up on today's uh, programme, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for global diversity practice and also what you mm-hmm. hope to achieve in that time. Not just, of course, in navigating COVID-19, but also for beyond the pandemic too. So, you know, like everybody else, there were moments of fear, there were moments of this is surreal, but it's about staying resilient, staying focused, um, staying positive as much as, you know, in inverted commas and optimistic that you can. It's about reactivating your purpose because this provides stability to the people, it provides momentum for your business. Um, it's about thinking about how, 
you know, as I've said before, the lessons that we've learned. For me, this period of time for my business, you know, I, I, I would always say, you know, we got in global diversity practice. Global diversity, actually, it's really interesting. I'm back where I started my business. Mm. 11 years ago, In on this desk in my home, I started my business and now I'm right back there. And it's really made me reflect on that journey in the last 11 years. Mm. And in the last 11 years, working with, you know, huge brands, working with CEOs, you know, and influencing organizations to put their inclusive leadership at the heart of their operations. So we will continue in that fashion. We probably need to do a little bit more influencing and a little bit more convincing and a little bit more, you know, holding the hands of our clients and helping them to navigate this disruption mm-hmm. and to understand how what we're advocating will actually be the glue that gets us through. For me, inclusive leadership is the GPS that helps you manage the situation. So um, in terms of global diversity practice, one of the things that I used to always say was that we were we had all the rigor of a traditional consultancy and learning environment. We you know, started small, we grew exponentially, you know, we, we, our impact and influence grew. Um, but we always had the mentality of a startup. So what does that mean? That means never being complacent. That means knowing that you're only as good as your last intervention. That means always striving to be better and to learn and to adapt and to modify. And we have had to, you know, literally overnight take all of our activity online. And we were already quite digital about four or five years ago. I could see where the trends were going. And so we had a digital strategy in place and we had many, many aspects. And you can imagine when you're delivering to colleagues across the world, you have to be digital. So we were already set up to work remotely and virtually. Mm. Um, So all of those systems were in place. Um, but then we had to be even more courageous, and now we're repurposing our products, our services, where, you know, the relationship building, I'm spending time, which I really value with my clients, helping them navigate and understand, and learning from them. Um, and, you know, in this current time, your creativity, your imagination, your ability to stay strong and to, you know, make sure there are no, you know, is human nature to wobble and human nature to have gaps in, you know, how you're trying to be. But more more than not, more than anything, I say to my clients and I say this to my team and I say this to myself, what is the story you are going to be able to tell about how you were, what you did, and how you emerged from this moment, this moment in our lives? And I want to be able to tell a story through global diversity practice with my team and with my clients, a story of inspiration, a story of, um, you know, empathy, a story of trust, a story of delivering for for everybody and delivering for themselves. That's the story that I want to be able to tell. So, you know, in response to your question, how can we reintegrate our colleagues, how can we deliver the new normal but deliver it in a different way um, and how can we make sure we jumpstart our business recovery, our reintegration with humanity, with emotional intelligence, with humility and with vulnerability. I we write the rules. 
Mm. I've always said that, and this is a moment to rewrite them again. Exactly right. Um, and I think for anybody uh, listening to this who runs um, their own business, there's plenty of food for thought there because what story is it that they want uh, to be writing right now? And you mentioned, of course, how you've sort of symbolically gone full circle in being back at home, the place where you started the business. And I think there is a lot to be said for that. And it's exciting to hear about um, GDP's um, essentially desire for adaptability and innovation and being able to seize upon the opportunities that will come about as a result of this because there will certainly be opportunities um unfortunately farrah we are just about out of time on today's program but i have to say it's been an absolute pleasure and also really insightful experience having you on the air with us today and thank you so so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me my great pleasure thank you for your time and i wish everybody Um, uh, a healthy exit from this situation and everybody be safe Um, and a real shout out to our colleagues, our key workers you know if ever there was a moment to remember those people that we're referring to you know, look at them look what they've done, they've put their lives on the line for us and uh, we should never ever forget what they did and we should continue to acknowledge that um, and uh, recognise that. So thank you very much for the opportunity. I think you're absolutely right, and I would echo those sentiments um, entirely. Thank you once again, Farah, for coming on to the uh, the programme. Um, My was- pleasure. Mm-hmm. That was Farah Qureshi, the CEO and founder of Global Diversity Practice. And to echo what Farah said there, do stay home, do stay safe. It really does make a difference in saving lives. Uh, Coming up next on the programme today, I will be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. Lord Blunkett was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is 
that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity 
to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore 
to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. 
uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, 
I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much 
if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have 
some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him, which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, 
are also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.